Well, brothers and sisters, I would invite you this morning to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and as you are doing so, to please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to read in your hearing the first eight verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And as I never tire of reminding you, uh, what we are about to hear is not the words of mere men, but the very words of Christ himself to the church. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please, brothers and sisters, find your seats. You no doubt heard the expression, if you believe that, I have a bridge to sell you. Supposedly, this all goes back to con man George C. Parker, who in the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, made his money by scamming countless souls. To be more specific, he made his fortune by taking advantage of unsuspecting immigrants, selling them phony deeds to New York City's Brooklyn Bridge, as well as other landmarks like the Statue of Liberty, Madison Square Garden, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Similarly, I trust you've heard of a Ponzi scheme, which takes its name from Charles Ponzi. This man lured approximately 20,000 investors to pay him roughly $10 million. Why would they do such a thing, you ask? Because he convinced them they'd see a 50% return on their investment in just 45 days. Of course, this was nothing but a scam, one riddled from top to bottom with fraud and greed. So what's my point in bringing up those like Parker and Ponzi? Simply this, grifters abound. And that is true, unfortunately, both politically as well as pastorally. It seems the world is full of con artists who will say or do nearly anything in hopes that they will be able to grease their palms. But as the preacher of Ecclesiastes never tires of reminding us, there really is nothing new under the sun. You see, these grifters have always existed. We know, for example, that first century Roman cities were full of traveling philosophers, magicians, and religious enthusiasts who gained their livelihood simply by drawing followers to themselves. Think itinerant preachers and teachers. The problem is that ancient literature often associates these same teachers with overwhelming greed and sexual immorality. So here's the question in front of us, the one that is sort of right below the surface of our text. Was Paul one of those ancient religious grifters? For Paul, was Christianity a cash cow, right? Something that he had every intent to milk. 
His opponents certainly thought so, or at the very least accused him of such things. Even a cursory reading of the book of Acts, as well as the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, clearly reveal the sort of opposition that the apostle faced. At nearly every turn, enemies of the gospel constantly assailed him, impugning his character and challenging his authority, hoping, it would seem, to ruin the new church by destroying the reputation of the person God had used to plant it. Well, for all of those reasons and more, the passage in front of us is a glorious one. I say that because it gives us a unique opportunity, perhaps like no other passage in all of sacred scripture, to see through a window into the very soul of Paul. And really, the soul of every true pastor. What you discover in looking through this window is nothing less than a heart of commitment, affection, and tenderness. In other words, a faithful pastor doesn't just love God and Christ or preaching and the gospel, but a faithful pastor loves the church. And I think it's important to to remind ourselves of a necessary distinction, especially given our age of evangelical celebrities and internet preachers. There is a difference biblically and historically between preachers and pastors. Preachers are those who merely proclaim the word, but pastors are those who preach the word and at the same time spend their lives loving and caring for the congregation. That's perhaps a long way just to say that true pastors know and love those to whom they are ministering. So in an effort to really mine the gold of the text that is in front of us, Here's how we're going to go after it. What we have in our passage this morning is a wonderful portrait of a pastor. And so as we stare at it, I want us all to see the pastor's message, the pastor's motive, and the pastor's manner. That's our aim. And then throughout our time in God's Word this morning, I'm going to to draw out application for all of us, not just pastors. And then, at the same time, if we're not doing enough already, I also want us to make sure that we see something of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the great pastor of our souls. So let's begin by staring at this portrait and taking note of the pastor's message. To really capture the weight of this, we have to see that the preaching of Paul and his team, remember Paul is not alone, he has has an entourage with him, that this preaching was birthed from the womb of conflict. After all, Paul confesses in verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. If if you want something of the backstory, you ought to spend your afternoon reading the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. Then you'll get a taste of what Paul is very sort of alluding to here. Suffice it to say, Paul and the entirety of his missionary team, they were subjected to intense physical suffering as well as public shame. Another way to say it would be that when they left Philippi and they headed on to Thessalonica, they did so walking with a limp. Andrew Young captures the scene this way. He says, Paul and his team had not strolled into Thessalonica as relaxed and overfed tourists. They had entered, rather, still sporting the scars of a woeful mishandling at Philippi. And then Young adds in a clever way, treatment like this would have been enough to stop any phony mission in its tracks. We might say out of the frying pan and into the furnace. And that's because the conflict that that engulfed them in Philippi, it reared its ugly head here in Thessalonica as well. 
Take note again of Paul's words at the end of verse 2, where he says that he and his team preached the gospel to this city in the midst of much conflict. In other words, the message was proclaimed, that's true, but it was proclaimed in the face of stiff opposition. To which I want to say, take note, Christian. Take note that controversy and conflict always follow the preaching of the gospel, just as your shadow follows you. And that such controversy and conflict must be met with courage. Courage, because without it, the gospel, beloved, will die inside the four walls of a church building. Now, I can't resist at least pointing out in passing how out of step so many of us are, myself included, from the early Christians at this point. Here's what I mean by that. We sort of instinctively assume that when we face conflict, well, that something is wrong, right? That, that, that it ought not to be this way. That, that whatever we're doing to, to sort of br- bring about this conflict, we ought not to, we, we ought to stop doing what we're doing. I, th- I think that we have got this through the inoculation of self-help drivel Not to mention therapeutic messages masquerading as sermons. We just assume that God's will for us is that we would constantly be cozy and comfy. And so in the event that we catch even a a whiff of anything that would smell like conflict, we immediately backpedal and we chalk it up to one of those great, great Christian cliches, right? God is closing the door. So that opposition and sickness and pain and trials and struggles, pretty much anything that none of us want, we just assume that God doesn't want it for us either. What's the result of this cancerous theology? Here's proof, again, that all of us, myself included, have drank this poison. We are allergic to conflict. That's the disease. And one of the symptoms that reveals this is that we don't participate in evangelism. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want conflict. We don't want to risk a relationship. We don't want to look stupid. We don't want someone to be angry at us. We don't want to not be able to go back through that coffee drive through window because we might see the person that we offended the week before. Again, we assume wrongly that the Christian life is to be marked by comfort when so often it's actually marked by conflict. Here's the rub. When it comes to conflict, and this is particularly true in the realm of evangelism, which you will notice is the context of our passage this morning, conflict is usually evidence of effectiveness. What's that old phrase? You know you're over the target when you start catching flack? The the true and faithful preaching of law and gospel. That, that all men, young and women, all men and women, young and old alike, that every single person is wicked, a sinner, and living in utter rebellion to God. That there is nothing that any of us can ever do to earn heaven or escape the wrath of God that we deserve. But that it is only on account of Christ that any of us can ever be pardoned. That message tends to enrage people. A message that boldly declares that God is your creator and ruler, not you. That Christ is king, not your feelings. That sin is to be repented of. Not celebrated. 
that Christ died for sinners and you are the chief of sinners. That only Christ can save you from yourself, from your sin, your death, and your hell. And that on the basis of Christ and Christ alone, that there is no other way to ever be reconciled to a holy God. And that no amount of your religious activities will ever suffice. You start saying stuff like that, no one's going to hold a parade for you. You will be met with conflict. And therefore, in the face of conflict, Christians must have courage. Redeeming grace, we must have courage. Catch this. Despite the suffering that Paul and his team experienced in Philippi, right? What caused them all the drama in Philippi? They opened their mouth. So they make the trek to Thessalonica to do what? Open their mouth. Verse 2, they had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Don't miss that tiny little preposition. Boldness in God. Gospel boldness is in God. It's from God. It's through God. It only comes from knowing him and trusting him and loving him and spending time with him and yes, fearing him. Christian, the more deeply you know God and trust God and fear God, I can assure you of this, the more courage you will have in the face of conflict. Or at the risk of stepping on toes, our not-so-subtle fear of man reveals we care way too much about what the world thinks of us and not near enough about what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit think of us. What does this courage look like? How does it manifest itself? In a word, conviction. To return once again to verse 2, we are told that they had boldness in our God. Boldness to do what, Paul? Verse 2, to declare to open our mouths, to proclaim, to speak, to herald to you, verse 2, the gospel of God, and to do so, verse 2, in the midst of much conflict. As Christians, we must have conviction. And this is true especially of pastors, and especially of missionaries, and especially of church planters. Without conviction, Christians and the church will become like those tumbleweeds we saw yesterday in the midst of that windstorm. We will just be blown all over the map. It takes conviction, does it not? To stand God's word in hand and condemn all men in their sins. It takes conviction to state that all people fall short of the glory of God and that all men are subjects of God's wrath owing to their sin. It takes conviction to abolish idols, especially the ones our culture loves. It also takes conviction to destroy every false way of salvation including, brothers and sisters, the ones that us religious people love to trust in. And it takes conviction to put forth Christ and call sinners to place their faith in Him and in Him alone, as opposed to people trusting in their own goodness or morality or idolatrous ideas. Here's the good news, though. Yes, conflict is inevitable. And, of course, courage and conviction are required. And, yes, it is true, the gospel message is foolishness to the world. You will be mocked and laughed at and scorned. It comes with the territory. If they put our Savior on a tree, why would you expect anything less for you? 
That stuff's all true. But the good news is that this same gospel is, Romans 1.16, the very power of God for salvation. Furthermore, God promises us that his word will not return void, but it will accomplish the very purpose for which he sent it forth. In fact, God goes so far as to tell us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That is to say, the preaching of the word of the gospel is the primary way about which God saves and sanctifies sinners. So why did Paul and his team preach with a limp in the face of more conflict? Why do we make much of the gospel? Because we have nothing else. Because the gospel is the one message that the church has been entrusted with. And the church must begin to recognize that this is both our privilege as well as our responsibility. Know this, redeeming grace. In the gospel, we find the power of Christ. We find pardon from Christ. And we find peace with Christ. In the gospel, we receive all that Christ is for us. We receive all that we need in Jesus. And so like Paul, we cling to it. Like a drowning man clings to his life jacket. And we proclaim this gospel as if it is the only medicine available for sin-stricken souls. Which it is. I would submit to you that as we stare at this portrait of a pastor, and as we look at his message here in 1 Thessalonians 2, there is something that is beyond dispute, and that is that Paul was a man of conviction. But perhaps his conviction was the result of greed. In other words, is he a charlatan, akin to a modern-day televangelist? Maybe Paul is out proclaiming this message with much conviction, hoping that by doing so, he'll be able to retire early on the beaches and enjoy my ties. Well, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that because for starters, we know that Paul suffered immensely. And on top of that, Paul never really gained anything materially for all his labors. If his goal was luxury and ease, then Paul failed rather remarkably. So then what were his motives? Why was he so adamant to spend his life preaching the gospel and planting churches? Well, we know what his motives were not. Paul tells us in verse 3, he says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. It, it doesn't come from error, Paul says. In other words, the gospel that I preached among you, it wasn't wrong, right? It's, it's not like Paul thought it up or they sort of had this handed down to them because some church council voted on it. No, the gospel comes from God. The gospel is a message about Christ. And it is one that revolves around how sinners like you and I can be reconciled to God. Only by grace alone, through faith alone. As you and I trust in Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection as our only satisfaction for sin. This gospel isn't in error, nor does this gospel, verse 3, spring from impurity. Quickly, it will help, I think, to notice that impurity here carries with it the idea of being sexually compromised. The point that Paul is making is that he doesn't travel from town to town looking to take advantage of lonely and gullible housewives, hoping that this gospel will ingratiate them to him or, or something that he can use to exploit them sexually. 
Nor is any of this, verse 3, an attempt to deceive. There's no trickery here. This isn't one of those bait and switches. This isn't the 80s at the mall where some guy pulls you in a back room for a timeshare pitch. As Paul would tell the Corinthians, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse, Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4, to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. You see, we must concede that some treat Scripture as a wax nose, but not Paul. At every opportunity, he flatly repudiates all such vices. Still seeking to defend himself and his ministry, he proceeds in verse 5. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor, verse 6 now, did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Words of flattery or flattering speech here is really just inflated speech. It's designed to hypnotize someone into doing your bidding. You know these types of people, right? They are constantly stroking your ego. All so that they can manipulate you. Toward the end of verse 5, the ESV opts for the word pretext. Paul says, nor with a pretext for greed. Well, pretext here is more simply cloak. Really, you could insert the name of just about any televangelist you see on the TBN network and you'd get the flavor. For Paul, the gospel wasn't a means to an end. The gospel is the end. And the gospel is the end because the gospel is Christ. The gospel is found in Christ. Nor was Paul's motive to seek glory from people, as verse 6 puts it. He wasn't looking to be crowned or sought out or made much of. Paul never wanted his hearers to think, what a great speaker. What a great sermon. He always wanted his people to think, what a great Savior. So given all this, what were his motives? If not ambition, or pride, or greed, or popularity, or book sales, or social media followers, what was Paul's aim? The answer is to please God. Verse 4 is clear. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. Beloved, the motive of Paul is singular. It is to please God. And so I have to ask you, redeeming grace, Is that your motive? Pastor or not, our ambition should all be the same. Do you live and move and have your being so that you might be pleasing to God? Do you inhale and exhale to the glory of the Father? Do you long to please Christ in all you do? Is your soul taken up with the desire to be joyfully satisfied in the Holy Spirit and to serve Him? It should. Church, we are most truly human and most fully fulfilled when we live our lives to please God. Now, with all of that being said, I do need to be careful in fleshing this out. And and I'm a little hesitant because it's possible that some of you, or maybe even a great many of you, might be tempted to respond to something in, in some way like this. Okay, it sounds to me 
Like what pastor is telling me to do is to hop on my spiritual treadmill and get to work. That way God will finally be pleased with me. In other words, you might in some way have your wires crossed and hear this. I need to be pleasing in God's sight. Therefore, right now I must not be pleasing in God's sight. And if that's you, let's pause for a brief moment. To make sense of Paul's motive here, as well as really the whole entire Christian life, you and I need to recognize that there is a flow. There's a tempo. There's an order. Just like in a dance, there is one who leads and one who follows. So in the Christian life, there are certain steps. And to further the metaphor, too many Christians step on toes because they don't understand the dance that is the Christian life. The Christian life, you have to see, is most faithfully experienced and enjoyed. Yes, Christian, you are to be enjoying being a Christian. There's nothing spiritual about being angry all the time. We enjoy and experience the Christian life when we move from guilt to grace into gratitude. That's the order. That's the dance. It goes guilt, grace, gratitude. Let's flesh that out. As rebels to God, we are met by God's rigid, harsh, and inflexible law. A law which condemns us. Hence, our guilt. But then, in scandalous grace, God quickly comes to us with the good news of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners. Do you know what that's called? That's the gospel. Or, grace. It is all about what God has done through his son for you. Then, and the order here is critical, after having our sins forgiven, after being imputed Christ's very own righteousness, after being adopted into God's family, after receiving the promised Holy Spirit, then and only then do we strive to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Enter gratitude. And gratitude is where Paul lives. His desire, end of four again, is to please God. But it is to please God out of gratitude for all the grace that he has received. Here's the problem, though. Everything, and I mean everything, goes wrong when you mess up the order. And unfortunately, most Christians live their lives this way. Guilt... Gratitude, grace. In other words, they see their sin for what it is. Guilt. And then, rather than receive Christ and rely on Christ and rest in Christ, right, grace, they immediately move to gratitude thinking that they can again hop on their spiritual treadmill and pay off the debt of grace that they have just received. When this happens, and again, for so many, tragically, this really is their Christian experience. When this happens, the highway of the gospel becomes littered with potholes. And the journey becomes a miserable one. Now, at this point, you might be scratching your head and asking the question, well, I forget, why this tangent again? I want you to remember that we are trying to drill down on motive. What was Paul's motive? He tells us in verse 4, it's not to please man, but to please God. And here's the irony, the paradox, really. 
Our aim ought to be to please God. Again, gratitude to return to our three G's. But catch this. Even with every inch of us striving to please God, here's the paradox. God is already pleased with you on account of Jesus Christ. That's why it's guilt, grace, gratitude, not guilt, gratitude, grace. You see, the one puts the accent on us as if we work to win God's affection, as if there's this carrot that is sort of dangled out in front of us. But the other puts the accent on Christ, where yes, we still work, but we work out of his grace because we know we have already received God's affection. Maybe think of it like this. Let's say dad comes home from work and he is quickly met by little Johnny who has been laboring diligently to create some macaroni craft. One that, if we are honest, is probably not going to find its way into a museum. But to dad, this noodled artwork is a prized possession, isn't it? It's something that that brings tears to his eyes and joy to his heart. Why? For the simple reason that fathers love their children. And good fathers crown their children's good works with love. Even though little Johnny is no Picasso, his artwork is still going to make it on the fridge, isn't it? So here's the question. Is little Johnny working hard at that macaroni craft, hoping that when dad gets home, it will win his approval? That way, little Johnny gets to eat dinner that night and doesn't have to sleep out back in the shed. Is that why little Johnny is working so hard at his craft? Of course not. He's working hard at that craft because he loves his dad. And he knows his dad loves him. And he's not living in fear of missing a meal or living out back. His motive, you see, is different than so many Christian motives. The motive of little Johnny is the same as Paul's, really, and Lord Lord willing, ours. It is one of gospel gratitude and love fueled by grace. Or to use the language again in verse 4, it is to please God. A God who is already pleased. Christian, when you get this, like in your bones get this, it is freeing and life-giving and exhilarating. In the gospel, Christ, please hear this, He has already done everything that is necessary for you. Literally, every single work required for your sin to be forgiven and for you to be welcomed into the very presence of God, every jot and tittle, every single iota was fulfilled by Christ alone. It is done. It is finished, Christ himself would say from the cross. And when you get that in your soul, you know what it does? It frees you up to make noodled macaroni art. It frees you up to love God and to serve God and to delight in God and to spend your life on God. You no longer walk on eggshells, worried that you're somehow going to screw everything up. As if God is some drunken, derelict father who's just wandering through the house looking for a reason to pound on somebody. When your eyes are open to see the ocean of God's gospel grace and love and mercy, your motive will realign from, I want to try and earn God's pleasure. It will go from that to, 
I'm a child of God. I'm already pleasing in God's sight. I've already been robed in the righteousness of Christ. Christian, do you realize you can never be more justified than you are right now? No matter what you do tomorrow, or in a month, or in a decade, or in a lifetime, you will never stand more right in God's sight than you do right now. And that's because of Jesus. So your motive will realign from I want to try and please God to I'm already pleasing in God's sight and out of a heart of overjoyed gratefulness and thanksgiving, I want to exalt God in all I do. You see, we've seen the heart of Paul, haven't we? And I hope in some sense the heart of a true pastor We've seen his message. We've explored his motive. Finally, as our time begins to run out, how did he do all of this? Or, you know I'm a slave to alliteration. What is the manner in which Paul did all of this? I warn you, the answer is in verses 7 and 8, but it is quite shocking. We are told, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. I say this is shocking because of the picture that Paul paints. He, he actually adopts feminine, motherly attributes And he applies them to himself and to his team. He goes so far as to say in verse 7 that we were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Well, what's that a picture of? What's the picture of a nursing mother but utter sacrifice and tenderness? Doesn't the mother conform her her new life in every way around this little newborn so that she can meet every one of its needs? Think about that. Think about it, especially you first-time mothers. How your whole life is radically changed. Now you sleep when baby sleeps. All your thoughts are wrapped up with this little piece of you. For crying out loud, the baby only lives because of the nutrients that mama provides. You you zoom out and you look at, at women and moms in the Bible. What you realize is that God made moms to be life givers. And moms are life givers by giving up their life. And Paul says, you know... That's a lot like pastoral ministry. Well, the picture only becomes more wonderful. It's only filled out with greater color and beauty. Paul uses a handful of words. For example, the beginning of verse 7, we're gentle among you. The warmth only increases in verse 8, where we read being affectionately desirous of you. And then at the end of verse 8, Paul adds, because you become very dear to us. You hear that language? Gentle, affectionately desirous, dear to us. Is this not the wonderful language of love? This church is nothing short of deep Christian affection. Affection that is mirrored for us in the gospel. What I mean by that is, is the gospel is the gospel of the triune God delighting to save sinners. Some of you are so guilt-ridden that you think that God is up in heaven reluctant to save you. God delights to save sinners. Consider, it was not spite or vengeance or indifference or boredom that sent the Son of God to us. But it was the very love of the Father, a love so rich and so full and so magnificent that you and I can scarcely even comprehend it. 
We are told that the Father loves us, Jeremiah 31, verse 3, with an everlasting love. Neither should we think of Christ's sin-paying, guilt-destroying, conscience-cleansing, covenant-ratifying, grave-killing, accusation-silencing, hell-emptying, and skull-crushing death as anything other than Christ's love for you. That's what the ears of our hearts should hear in the gospel. That Christ loves to love sinners. And when you doubt, which I know you do, Christ continues to condescend to us by inviting us to a table and giving us bread and wine intended, among other things, to remind us of his great love for us. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit gifted us in the gospel of covenant grace. The Holy Spirit is a gift that sings of his love for us. You might think of it this way, all that the Father planned for us and all that the Son of God procured for us, the Holy Spirit presents to us. For example, the very miracle of regeneration is from the Holy Spirit, as is your faith to believe. Christian, your past conversion, your present assurance, and your future inheritance It is all secured for you by Christ and sealed to you in the Holy Spirit. And again, all of this is because the Holy Spirit loves you. The Holy Spirit loves the bride of Christ, the church. So when you look, for example, at verses 7 and 8, and you see lofty language like gentle and affectionately desirous and dear to us, you aren't supposed to stop at Paul and go, wow, like that dude was great, right? Nor should you fall into the trap of looking at Pastor Justin or Dave or myself and thinking, wow, these guys really are the best pastors. Because the truth is, and this is no joke, our love for you is so often cold and shallow, because we are selfish, because we are sinners. And so our love for you, it doesn't burn hot like it should. The truth is, our love for you is so often like the flicker of a small candle. But don't fret, because the very love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, His love for you is like that of a million suns burning eternally. Redeeming grace, the message of God's love is a message of God's love. A love for you. Love where he rescues you. This is why pastors are supposed to love their flock. This is why Christians are supposed to love one another. Why? Because 1 John 4, God has first loved us. And the love of God poured out into our hearts, Romans 5, 5, is so profound and so transformative that we now in turn love one another. In love, we pour out ourselves in service to one another, just as God himself poured himself out for us upon the cross. This is what Paul did, isn't it? He poured himself out. The end of verse 8 displays this wonderful reality. We're told that so being affectionately desirous of you that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God but also our very own selves. You see, Paul was ready to share the gospel. That's true. Nothing less. But something more. Paul and his team were ready to share their own lives with this congregation. Which is why, like I said earlier this morning, this really is a wonderful portrait of a pastor. As you stare at it, let me ask you, what is it that you see? What captures your attention? And I hope at this point, you see three glorious images. You see his message, his motive, and his manner. 
Hear me well. The faithful pastor strives to proclaim the gospel, to please God, and to have passion for the church. This was true of Paul, as 1 Thessalonians testifies, and it ought to be true of your pastors here, Redeeming Grace. At the same time, though, this ought not to be true of just pastors, but also congregations. As a church, we should all be taken up with the gospel, with serving God, and with truly loving one another. And let me just say, even as it gets late, that from where I stand this morning, we are doing that. I'm not suggesting that Redeeming Grace is a perfect church. It's not. But we are a faithful church. And we ought to thank God for that. And we ought to pray and ask for God's grace that we would only grow in our faithfulness in that regard. But really, church, as we wind to a close, what we should see this morning as we stare at this portrait of a pastor is a reflection of Christ himself. He who is the perfect pastor. As the infleshed gospel, he doesn't just preach the gospel to us. He is the gospel for us. As our faithful covenant head, he has pleased God on our behalf. This is why we are declared righteous in God's sight. Not because of how great you are or I am, but because of how great Jesus is. His very perfect righteousness is gifted to us. And as our bridegroom, he truly loves his bride. Think of it. Christ so desires to be with us that he actually took on our humanity, came to us, died for us, and has promised to return to us. Join with me in prayer. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in our midst, even in these very moments, showing us the very love of Christ, growing us in that love of Christ, and causing us then to love one another. We pray that your word would continue to take root in our hearts and in this church, and that you would more fully shape us into the very image of your beloved Son. We ask these things of you, Father, praying for the power of your Spirit, because these are things that we cannot do in and of ourselves. We really are, in a very profound way, utterly dependent upon you. So would you do this for us? Do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.